Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. We've got a few things to catch up with this week in the world of radio and sound and podcasting. There's going to be an FCC radio license auction. So there's going to be an opportunity. It's a delayed opportunity to get yourself a radio station, maybe, depending on where you live. And we're going to look at some new stats on podcasting and especially how the audience is changing as well. March is Women's History Month. So we definitely have some some podcast and radio news to talk about with regard to that. Jumping back into that top story, so to speak, we say it every time we cover this, but it is really true that if, if we're going to say what the number one email topic we get from listeners and other people is, it's how do I get a radio license? And the answer is usually wait. <laughs> well, the wait... Uh, is over for some folks coming up this July, July 27th. Hmm. So the FCC periodically has, you know, these licensing windows. Uh, so it's not the case that you can just sort of walk up to the FCC uh, license window whenever you like and apply for a license. The window is actually a window of time. And, what it, and they open it up for various different types of broadcast licenses, but it also includes things like satellite communications or wireless use for broadband, things like this. And in the commercial band, so for commercial radio stations, it is now an auction. Back in the day, you applied, you work with the FCC, you got a license. Now, of course, the most radio dials are really full. They're, they're jam-packed with stations. There aren't so many places on the dial, and there's many more people who want them than there are places for them. And so the FCC now does this as an auction. So the next one is coming up in July 27th. It was actually supposed to happen in April of last year, April of 2020. But with the onset of the first uh, restrictions around COVID-19, FCC offices were closed. And they hadn't yet figured out how to do their business as a virtual commission and virtual bureau. Uh, Now we're closing in onto a year of COVID-19 and the FCC has figured out how to do their business in, under the current climate. What's important to understand though, is that there aren't a lot of licenses in big markets in the most populated areas. Uh, there's actually 136 FM licenses nationwide and four count them four AM licenses and Up by and for large, auction in this next window. Yeah. In this next window. So a bid could start as and these low are as all, you said commercial. These, these are, are commercial, commercial radio licenses, commercial which radio. Um, is an interesting topic on Radio Survivor because we don't always, you know, we focus our attention on non-commercial radio, community radio, but it's we we've learned as we study the issues that um, non-commercial radio and commercial radio, when it because it lives on the same dial, because it shares the same real estate. The, the market forces that impact our non-commercial stations that we care about are um, do not happen in a vacuum. They, the market forces include you know, the price for, for commercial bandwidth in, in, right. in and, ways that I don't understand. And commercial, and commercial radio, there's, there's interesting commercial radio out there. And in fact, of course, there, there are colleges and universities too. that own commercial licenses. And in fact, there have been community stations that own commercial licenses. Just because your license permits you point. to run commercials doesn't always mean that you do, although you may. 
That was um, a blind spot for me just because I don't think I've ever lived in a city with a commercial radio station that functioned in the way um, – not since well, I was a wee child well, that and you may not, in that way. Yeah, you may not even be aware of it because they don't air commercials necessarily. Yeah, like, that's true. Like Princeton, the college radio station at Princeton University, they have a commercial license, but they really sound like a non-commercial station. They operate that way. They don't air commercials. Um, it just it just means that they could if they wanted to. And what an interesting flexibility, right? Yeah, and and then Paul is aware of a commercial college station in Illinois, um, WPGU and, at, in in Champaign Urbana, Illinois, uh, where the University of Illinois is. Yeah, so they they operate like a college radio station, but also sort of like a. a when I visited, they operated kind of like commercial radio station format wise. It was very much in that, like they change format every once in a while to sort of playlisted. They have a rotation. Yeah. So it's sort of like a practicum for, for students who are interested in going into the industry. Yeah. So there's a a wide variety. I wonder, we're talking about the FCC opening a window for commercial licenses in the United States, which is unique because it doesn't happen all the time. It's it's this brief opportunity for new stations to come online. I We're talking about the news of it, and so I don't want to derail us, but I want to come back to this in a little bit. Um, the distinction between uh, radio stations that I care about and radio stations that I uh, tend to leave to their own, <laughs> the mess that they make without worrying about them, and why why I have this distinction in my head. Like, why do I like some radio so much but take all these other stations and throw them into a a darker place to not have to um, well, worry about their lack of uh, some of quality. It, some of it, I think, just might be lack of familiarity or awareness. My eyes have really been open to small town commercial radio stations that are more like you know operated. You know, the mom and pop is what people say, but yeah. it's um, you know I've I've driven through communities where. The commercial radio station sounds pretty much the same as the local community right. radio station because if you're in a very small town, you know, you're going to be really serving your public in well, that way. Well, and, and it really is ownership there in that case, right? And yeah. then often it's smaller markets that are untouched by consolidation or less touched. So they're just simply not seen as very valuable to a larger radio conglomerate that hasn't moved in to snap them up. Uh, and, and, you know, which often leaves uh, smaller owners in place, you know, and smaller owners can be both sort of mom and pop, meaning we own a radio station or own two. It can be clusters, you know, where, where a smaller company might own 15 radio stations in a given region. And often they will have a different sort of sound uh, because they, they are not relying necessarily right. on all of the the same products and, and technologies and talent pools that, that say an iHeart or a Cumulus or an Intercom, uh, the three biggest players in, right. in, in, in U.S. radio. Who, 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 who built a model of homogeneity, of sameness, yeah. <laughs> of blandness that was profitable for a little while and then destructive to the entire culture of radio. I'm just reminded that last week we spoke with an expert about the Indian for Indi- the Indians for Indians, oh boy, uh, radio program, which was a very long-running community radio program, which started off on a community, on a college radio station in the 40s, but now is still on the air, uh, Indian voices broadcasting to an Indian audience, Native Americans, um, and 
it's still on the air and now it's on a commercial radio station. Yeah. The Navajo in, Nation in the Southwest. Owns, owns a commercial AM radio station with 50,000 watts, a clear channel. Yeah, so, so if I was if I had more familiarity with uh, some more uh, a wider, more diverse, beautiful variety of commercial radio stations, my opinions might change. Yeah. Well, and yeah, when you yeah. when you get to have a road trip again, Eric, you might <laughs> be able to like hear the vast landscape of of radio at least it's in true. the United States. Well, and the, it, that stuff's always out there. You know, the, that's true. It's the curse of the internet is that you never quite know where to look to to find good things when you're when you're just scrolling Twitter to find out what's the what's the latest latest uh, bit of doom. So uh, we we're we we're talking well, about the FCC opening a window. I don't want to derail. Yeah, us ultimately, too far. a radio license is a radio license. So the commercial radio license carries with it no restriction on being able to. Or, air commercial content the non-commercial license has that restriction yeah with, with a further restriction that to, to have a non-commercial license it has to be assigned to to a recognized uh non-profit right so you you can't it can't be uh given to somebody who owns a for-profit company an llc or uh you know an s corp a b corp etc um the you know these are real real restrictions whereas there's no restrictions with regard to that in in the commercial realm and and that is also though you have to recognize that when a non-commercial license is assigned by the FCC or it's, it's truly it's a it's actually a, a construction permit that's assigned you get the license once you're you've certified that you're ready to go on the air um but the construction permit you know the non-commercial construction permit comes at no cost you don't pay the FCC anything for it right you have to participate in a process which is also competitive, but ten, but is competitive based upon the merits of the organization, the merits it's, of your. It's a very good idea. To, it's a very good idea to hire lawyers. Yeah. To, it's more to like it's more like work. getting into college, right? <laughs> Whereas the auction is is more like uh, you know being at Sotheby's, uh, you know, and and so every market has sort of a minimum bid. Uh, that so it can start as low as like seven hundred and forty dollars if you want to try and get a station in Yakutut, um, Alaska, Essex, California, or San Ysidro, Texas, uh, Wamsutter, Wyoming. Those are all at the bottom end there. Now it doesn't mean you can get a license for that much. That's just the opening bid. Um, is it so, Paul? Do you know from past auctions? Is it the case where the the opening bid? Is often the final bid, or is that? I, I don't know that. that. Yeah, I, yeah, I just simply haven't followed them closely enough to know that. Um, so my guess is that, that, knowing what I know, my guess is that there are auctions where that happens, no doubt. And I mean, I'm going to take a wild guess that there were also different times, like in the late '90s, an auction like this would have brought in a different price, uh, just before. Before the industry, uh, not necessarily. It is. I mean, I mean, not proportionally speaking. Not necessarily. No. Fun. Um, do you, Do you think this is an opportunity for for group for non traditional or even non commercial nonprofit groups? Are there other costs associated beyond this opening bid? Because you were alluding to, if you're applying for a non commercial license, um, you don't you're not paying for these things. Are there other hidden costs besides this opening bid for a commercial license? Is that different from not that I'm aware of, not that I'm aware of, but I, I will note that there are entire sort of sets of policies and rules set in place for commercial and non-commercial stations that are separate and that do affect things like what you pay, 
uh, in terms of royalties for music use. Ah, it's right. settled. It's been settled differently for non-commercial stations, um, and so what you're, you know, and and sometimes those have more to do with who owns the station than whether it's commercial or non-commercial. For instance, Princeton University as a university qualifies for the rates negotiated for universities, regardless of right. But Neat. but if if you have a a a for-profit company or even an LLC that wants to run a station essentially as a community station but you don't have that nonprofit status, it's going to affect all these other things. I'm not a lawyer and that's about as much as I can say, but that that's something that one would should take into account is, you know, what is what kind of organization do you have and how will that affect it if you want to say air music programming? Um, and especially then as well, do you want that music programming to also be online? If you want to run a music online as well, that's an additional cost. And, and that's just something you need to look into. Right. So, Paul, I'm seeing that uh, that there's also some opportunities for some, for some impressively uh, – some, some, some bigger radio stations to uh, – to buy their way onto the airwaves in in some larger markets with this new FCC window. Yeah, there's a few large markets like Sacramento, California, which is a minimum bid of forty five thousand dollars for one hundred seven point nine FM, and that's a relatively large market um, as well. Uh, and this is new compared to even last year. There are four AM stations in the St. Louis metro area, and AM stations one should be advised tend to be more expensive to put on the air than FM stations. <laughs> engineering or? Engineering, engineering-wise, yes. Hmm. Um, so that, that you know, should be taken into account. And another thing to also take into account, right, and this is, this is true of a non-commercial window as well as a commercial window, is what is the class of license you're applying for, which is really what is the wattage and what is the engineering required to meet that your license uh, uh, class, right? So if you need to go on the air with at least 5,000 watts of power, well, you need to prepare for that and be ready for that that type of license. Well, you know, why we've talked about much more on Radio Survivor is low power FM, where all of that is sort of settled business. You will go on the air with no more than 100 watts. So the costs around that engineering are relatively constrained, they're not nothing, but there's there's a fairly limited high end of that engineering cost compared to the difference between trying to have a 15,000-watt transmitter or, or a 1,000-watt transmitter. And there are no low-power FMs in this commercial, so there's not, there's not going to be any stations working at 100 or 250 watts in this mix. right? right. And they, when, they, you, when you're talking about low-power FM, for, for our listeners who aren't familiar yet, um, this was a new uh, class of radio stations that was – that was, uh, you know, created by activists in the in the two thousands for community radio stations, for nonprofit radio stations to go on the air um, in in the gaps in the in the in the cracks that existed. Especially well, it turned out in the cracks, in the yes, but not initially. But really, to go in, to go on the air inexpensively uh, and easily, right? Which was a very uh, exciting. Uh, flowering of community radio that Radio Survivor, we here at Radio Survivor have always been uh, really fascinated by it. In a way, sometimes it seemed like we were the um, that we were the, the most, like, that we were paying the closest attention the most often to, to this story, especially as it impacted, you know, the culture of community radio. It's been very exciting for us to watch. You know, we are now 
now that we're not just a podcast, but we're also a radio program, we air on a lot of low-power FM stations. So this window that's opening for commercial radio licenses at the FCC is not for low-power FM, but I, but I, I see, Paul, that well, And we need to have it. This is important because the FCC sort of stacks up these auctions or these windows for applications. So that and, – and, and part of it is kind of almost like a round robin, right? So – Commercial radio needs to get it get a chance. Non-commercial gets a chance, et cetera, et cetera. It's um, one at a time, right? It, because they need to kind of get everything cleared out, give give the proper opportunity, and then move on. Yeah, you can't answer certain questions about the next auction until the f- auction previously is completed because yeah. of the space required to put radio stations on the yeah. air. So, in fact, this window for the commercial radio auction that's going to happen in July needs to complete before the FCC will now move on and open up a window for the next low-power FM uh, opportunity, which we know is going to happen, which the FCC said is going to happen. We talked about that on episode 269. We'll put that in the show notes at radiosurvivor.com. So, and, and, and in part, why this has to happen is that low-power FMs can kind of go anywhere on the dial. We know that non-commercial stations are... It, it are, have a reserved space from uh, 88 to 92 oh, on the right. dial. Doesn't mean you can't have a non-commercial station elsewhere, but in that space, you can only have a non-commercial station. So commercial stations can only be from 92 to 108 on the FM dial. Um, but a low-power FM might happen at 101.5. But first, they, in order to see what space will be left... We have to have the commercial license uh, opportunity for these full power stations, right? So then, and then the FCC will be able to sort of take uh, a perspective and see what are the potential opportunities for new low power FMs across the dial. So, you know, should should a low should a non a sort of nonprofit or community organization do this? Uh, my answer is well, if you have the money, <laughs> right? I mean. Uh, you know, maybe you should. Um, certainly, if you want to have a station with higher power, this is a great opportunity. Though we, we you know, we probably also are expecting to have a full power non-commercial um, opportunity as well coming in the next year or so. Um, you know, and but it, and it's also important uh, to point out that that at this point on most dials. We're out of frequencies or getting really close to it. Yeah, in a lot of in a lot of urban, I don't want to say markets, in places where people live that are dense, there's a lot of radio. It's full. It's full. So you know, uh, if you know, we're at a point where if you see an opportunity, but you know, you should be consulting. I mean, at this point, if you're going if you're going to be applying participating in this auction, you ought to be consulting with 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 a radio engineer. The radio engineer who is yeah. familiar with the FCC licensing process, and that engineer should be able to provide you a study that tells you what frequencies you know might be available to you. In, in you know, so you certainly have this list that the FCC gives you. But if you say you're a nonprofit organization and you're trying to figure out what your chances are compared, you know, getting a commercial license versus getting a non-commercial license or waiting around for low power FM, a good 
radio engineer ought or engineering firm ought to be able to provide you with some of that data ought to be able to tell you here's what we think we think this is your last best chance or no if i were you you know i'd wait around they'll probably also know the scuttlebutt they'll probably also have some sense for yeah this seems like this license there's going to be really uh you know for this construction permit there's going to be a lot of competition it's going to get bid up or Eh, it seems like nobody really wants this one. They're going to know some things. And so this is really, it's, it's important to note, really important to work with a qualified, you know, radio engineer, especially one who has worked with the FCC a lot, right? You're going to need that advice. You should not go into this ready to write checks without having done that. Um, also good to consult with a good broadcast lawyer. Again, somebody who, you know, is in the federal bar who is experienced working with the FCC because you're going to, you're going to need advice. And especially if you're going to start making plans for something, which is going to, you know, the license alone may cost you tens of thousands of dollars and that's not even getting into the cost of building a station. Right. Cause it would make yeah. it very clear. We're not, you're not buying a station here. Like the FCC is not auctioning off a piece of property with a studio and an antenna and a transmitter. They're auctioning off a spot on the dial. The yeah, rest my, is up to you. My favorite thing to remind <laughs> the listeners of this show is, uh, you know, it's nice to pay your uh, radio professionals a, a wage that keeps the that keeps their rent and food on the table. Uh, you know, radio costs money. It doesn't just appear out of out of thin air you know people make radio so we like uh, people yeah we like people to know about the opportunity but yeah. none of us is an engineer and none of us is is a lawyer so we're giving you the and basics that we f- know and and because we feel like the more that, that people know about this the, the the greater the chances that uh there might be a group who takes advantage and right. creates some really interesting commercial radio but we definitely say do you know do not you know do not take our advice here so much as to know it, it's there to please go out and talk with, with a qualified radio right. engineer, um, talk to a qualified uh, broadcast lawyer. Um, you can find them. You can find them easily online. Let me just say, it, uh, say and, that. And the other reason that Radio Survivor shares this information, the reason why this is a show topic today that we're concluding, is that we are always excited and fascinated by how the spectrum of radio is uh, sliced and diced officially so that the culture of radio uh, grows from the rules that have been created. And we like to remind our listeners that these rules um, are just, they're a very like unique form of culture. They're very, they're a society. Like people have gotten together and formed these rules uh, through a political process and also like other kinds of um, struggles and, and collaborative efforts. But None of it was preordained or, you know, the way that the radio sounds this week is not necessarily what's going to be on the radio uh, next year, even though that tends to be how it always works. But the the cycles and the patterns and the history is something that, you know, endlessly fascinates us here on Radio Survivor. And so now that the FCC is opening another window, it's just an opportunity for us to sort of examine that process again as it unfolds. Uh, you're listening to Radio Survivor? The sound of uh, the sound of strong communities is what we used to say on the show. Now we say for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein. The last voice you heard was Paul Reese Mendel. Co-host Jennifer Waits is also on the air with us today. And we're going to turn now to talking about... Um, 
some some data. There are you know we're, we're turning from terrestrial Something radio. Something you don't need a license for is <laughs> podcasting. We're turning from terrestrial radio to online radio to time shifted po- radio, which we call podcasts. And there's a new report out, Paul, and you know that's been uh, an area of your expertise, and now it's uh, you know, an important part of your of your job to follow this stuff. So what's, well, yeah, what's and new? I think it's it's interesting because I you know in podcasting. And in sort of any medium, people's perceptions get fixed at certain points in time, right? And I think for a long time, there was a perception that podcasting was a couple of white dudes in a basement somewhere having some beers, uh, you know, shooting the breeze. And you know, I have to over- interrupt and, and let us, let our listeners know that that's not true. And we, <laughs> well, we well, know, we've right. done we've done episodes about the long history. But of that was a perception. Where yeah, right. of course. I just want to, yeah, yeah. you know, we, you know, we we have Jennifer has helped produce episodes in the past where we talked to uh, scholars who studied the hidden voices of women in podcasting right, right, and how right. they've they were there from day one, but weren't necessarily the ones who had uh, think pieces written about them in the newspaper a week later. Right, um, but oh, it yes. doesn't change it people's. Per- yeah, runs across it, industries. With it runs women, right. Sadly, but 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 of course that perception, right? Yes. Unfortunately, starts to make its own reality. Because people then do or don't tune into podcasts because they do or do not think that it's for them. It also makes reality because people who might podcast think, well, if this is really the club I'm getting into, is it a club I want to be a member of? So, you know, it's important. And that's why I really call that out because it's important for us to mark when reality changes and to help also have that perception start to map to reality. And, in as much as that it's important who is making podcasts, it's also important who is listening to podcasts. And because, again, we were in podcasting for a very long time. The perception was that it was a principally, you know, sort of middle aged white male audience. And to be frank, it was very true that that tended to be the the vast, uh, very large majority of podcast listeners back back in the early part of the 21st century. I mean, even as late as is, I mean, uh, you know, not the, that that late. <laughs> so sure, like, sure. It's just well, so, it, well I, no. I mean, I, I, I always love to remind myself that podcasting is so old, right? That sure. that that if if radio history goes back a, a hundred years, podcast history goes back about a quarter of that time, which is an awful lot. It's an awful lot of of, of years, seventeen of years or so. Uh, <laughs> right, quite right, a but, quarter. But yeah, but I mean, where do you start? Which we're not going to get into start? that debate today. Exactly. But there's we... been a lot of time shifted radio on the internet before there were and yes. proto podcasts. proto podcasting, yeah. which we've done episodes about. Yeah. You know, early audio blogs, which I might allude to later. Sure, but as something which the average person uh, might know about and be able to subscribe to and listen to. About yeah. 17 years. Um, so that's all to say that in you know what we're finding and what we're learning, though, is that the podcast audience is, is growing, both in terms of numbers of people and also broadening in terms of the folks who, who are tuning in. And so uh, Nielsen, who many people know for radio and television ratings, uh, they also do a, a podcast survey 
through their division called Scarborough called the Podcast Consumer Buying Power Survey. I'm very familiar with it because uh, I subscribe to it at work, uh, which we learn all sorts of in, uh, demographic insights about uh, the podcast audience. But they, they also get lots of things at the aggregate. And so they just released a report this week, which shows that actually the podcast audience is now more racially diverse than the U.S. population as a whole. Oh, interesting. Right. So what, what, is, what we've learned now is that the, the podcast audience is now 59% white or, or identifies as, as white versus 67% of the U.S. population as a whole. Um, and, and particularly, uh, we've seen growth in, in Lat, uh, Latinx uh, listenership, uh, which has grown to about 19% versus about 16% of the population, and black listenership, which has grown to about 13% versus about the, representing about 11% of the U.S. population. And I think this is news. I think this is important. Um, again, because also audiences just don't magically appear. People don't turn to a medium uh, – you know, these days, uh, because there's nothing to listen to, right? There has to be uh, changes happening and there has to be more, uh, podcasts, I think, uh, turning up that folks, uh, you know, who are not interested in the same things as middle-class, uh, yeah. middle-aged white guys are interested in. There has to be shows for folks, uh, with, with other divergent interests in order for them to want to be listeners to begin with. I'm going to make up a story and, uh, you know, you can react to my story. But um, to me, this this reminds me of how I felt about podcasts when they first came along 17 years ago, that um, they filled a niche of uh, – they filled a need that was uh, – there was a hunger for something different that wasn't getting onto the radio and podcasts came along and filled that need. It could have been on the radio. The audience could have found the same kind of talk content, but but it but it was it came out of the internet for 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 reasons. And so, to me, this this makes me wonder if there's not enough um, content for people of color in America in in the more mainstream channels and airwaves, and that that is why you're seeing so much growth in Latino and black uh, listeners in podcasts because it's like, um, it's, it's, it's like, it's a good place to go to hear voices that, that, that make you feel uh, welcome. Well, well, and related question to that. Do we know the numbers for radio? You know, so if you're, if you're seeing an increase in it, you know, if you're seeing more diversity in listeners to podcasts, uh, what does it look like for radio? Is you know, are they? Is that does that prove Eric's supposition there? Well, I, I one, I don't have those numbers. I wish you'd asked me yesterday because <laughs> I get to turn them up. <laughs> so sorry. These these thoughts these thoughts pop into my head in exactly. real time. They right. never they never occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so what I know about time. radio off the top of my head. Is that um, it, at this point in time, I believe the the overall listening patterns in terms of the greatest consumers are also more diverse in the population at large. There's more people of color. Um, one of the biggest areas of growth has been uh, Spanish language broadcasting in particular. I wonder if that's just a demographic fact because of the age 
difference between there's a lot of things i mean it's it's, because the people of color in the united states i think would would tend to be younger than the white population there are lots of trends there's lots of reasons in part you know you have to take into account digital equity access to broadband um uh where people work how they work how much they travel how much time they spend in cars for what reasons do they spend all the time in the cars like there's a lot of factors that that you would have to unpack and i can't quite do that and tell that story because i haven't done the research uh to, to tell we're, the we're story trying, yeah we're trying to develop this into maybe a three-hour discussion yeah. <laughs> right but but because it's I, a good it's a good episode because i'm also thinking about um are these numbers also reflective of more diversity in who is creating podcasts? Well, too? that's and that's a case I would make because I mean, in which we which we cannot I cannot say that definitively. I can say it directionally that I, I'm certain that it is the case that, and that's the kind of point I was trying to make is that uh, folks are you know more people of color are tuning into podcasts because there's more content of interest to people of color, which, which implies that there's more representation. And and again, I haven't sat down and done that analysis, so I can't really tell you. And it's a hard analysis to do, uh, because there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of podcasts. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I, I think that we can say that anecdotally speaking, it does, that does seem to be, to be true to your point though, Eric, I don't entirely agree with your with your analysis because I'm not entirely certain. I don't think we can say simply that that this could have been radio because I think the content of podcasts, aside, putting aside the public radio podcasts that that became popular early on, um, most of it was didn't did not mirror anything that was on radio much at all. I mean, you could make a few arguments that there was some uh, community style radio might have been very podcasty especially in those early years um but that overall it it seemed to really attract i think people and producers who never thought they could be on the radio or felt or in some cases had been and weren't anymore for any number of reasons in part we have to take into account the time of that podcasting is growing the number of jobs in radio is declining and is contracting, right? Because we have, right. uh, as we well have, as the variety of right. programming, yeah. because of the because of the the shrinking of jobs, the programming is also becoming more homogeneous. Yeah, well, and it's really more; it's becoming more homogeneous, and that's shrinking the jobs. It's sort of <laughs> the, the homogeneity drive. The, the the drive for homogeneity drives all the other factors. Right. Um, but and and the only place there really was growth is was in public radio, frankly. Um, which was enjoying uh, growing listenership and and therefore you know creating more programming and new new types of programming. Which also different show topic, but we've covered it on Radio Survivor. Seventeen years ago was a very white workspace uh, compared to probably all of radio. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean I'm just yeah. public radio was 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 not was did not have a. Uh, you know, there I can I can think of I can count them on my hand the the shows that were more um, explicitly for people of color. So you know, I think what we what what happened is in in a lot of ways I think podcasting was driven more by production than by demand. <laughs> was born was driven more by people who wanted to broadcast hmm. than necessarily a demand for it. But once it existed. And there was a sort of grand reawakening that radio could be different than what people heard on 
than what people heard on their broadcast dials and particularly different than the talk radio they heard, which was by and large in most radio dials, super constrained, right? It was right wing talk radio. It was public radio. So, you know, news, you know, news talk, but of a, of a, of a more, you know, of, of, you know, like all things considered or fresh air, um, sports talk, and then, you know, in some cities, you had this kind of news talk format that's that's not conservative, but, it you know, but it's really on a decline, you know, where it's just, I think, you know, a couple of hosts, two, three or four hosts who jibber jabber in between news and sports and, and weather updates, usually during drive time. Right. So it's 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 entertaining talk. The talk is light. It tends not to be political. Right. Uh, but that that kind of radio has been on a decline for quite some time. But it's still heard on, to some extent, on stations like WLS in Chicago or or maybe eight um, uh, ten KGO in 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 San Francisco. But again, they've really cut back on that. The, those hosts have often been sacked in favor of syndicated programming, and more often that syndicated programming is conservative talk. And so this sort of model for like what talk could be was very constrained. So, uh, you know, and then I guess you had sort of morning shows, you know, uh, Howard Stern prior to going to satellite radio, um, uh, things like that. Right. Uh, so I think the fact that that you could have all these shows about all these different things that weren't otherwise on at like 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday. Right. So at a sort of graveyard hour on a commercial station really changed, the, changed it. And then I think. For younger people who are now not listening to the radio because they don't feel like there's anything there for them and they have now digital music and they have other places to get music so they don't need to listen to the radio. Now being able to get at some of this better talk programming but online rather than having to, you know, and getting it on their own schedule, you know, also helps to to refresh this interest in podcasting. I've always been fascinated and obsessed with the emergence of a new form of of a talk media that's a hybrid of podcasting in its style, but it's also on YouTube, sometimes on Twitch. Um, there's a there's a huge new world of of thinkers online that remind me of the kind of people that would have been drawn to radio in a different generation who are making this media, um, talking to their audience. Uh, sometimes and you know it's it's changing all the time. It's very exciting. A TikTok now uh, is a place that I've been is a pool in which I've been waiting, trying to understand what people are, how people are communicating with each other. And it's if you haven't been there, don't believe the worst things you believe about these websites. There's a there's a lot of really interesting communication going on on TikTok, on Twitch, on YouTube. Um, well, it's very exciting. I- and I need to add, you know, I've just dipped my toe into Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces. Tell and, us about Clubhouse. And those are places where, you know, Clubhouse, I've listened to conversations that felt like very formal panel discussions, like you might hear at a place in San Francisco, like the Commonwealth Club, where, you know, it's very high level, interesting. Um, and then I was in a Twitter Spaces today that was kind of a combination of, more casual conversation, you know, along with some organized chatter. Um, but, you know, I've barely, I've barely scratched the surface, but 
all of these social audio sites are getting so much attention and buzz right now, and there are tons of them, you know, beyond Clubhouse and yeah. I just Twitter learned spaces. about Clubhouse this week, and so it's it's a new online space for talk for audio content. Yeah, user-generated audio content. And and we should definitely talk about this in a future show because I have a lot of questions in my mind about is this radio, is this like podcasting, and and I think it's going to play out in different ways because there are so many companies playing around with it now, and so we're probably going to have a lot of niche. Yeah sites that are devoted to different things which reminds me of a topic that we're going to discuss later on on today's episode that will probably end up in the podcast um because we have an hour-long radio program uh where we're going to be talking about sort of the um where where podcast where the podcast industry is at this point paul put the number at 17 years um there was so much um you know economic growth in the podcasting industry especially in the last five years um, a lot of consolidation that came along to change the sort of landscape of uh, the job landscape for pro- professional podcasting that uh, we're going to be talking about that in a bit. And I wanted to put a pin in that because it, it reminds me of the um, the jostling as well as the excitement around the culture of, of the medium. Uh, reminds me of podcasting from uh, six or seven years ago. And the last thing I'll say with regard to you know things like TikTok, YouTube – Clubhouse, etc. Um, sure, they're radio. <laughs> sure, they're podcasting. I think what I will always point out is that they are also private platforms in private arenas. And yeah. if podcasting has a particularly Unique trenchant power, power yeah. it's that it is an open ecosystem. Which is really important, yeah. And what Paul is saying is that um, that podcasts are all across the internet, but each individual program is hosted by the producer themselves somewhere on the internet, and that right if that you, allows if you, them if you a host form your, of independence. Yeah. If you host your show at Anchor or Facebook, and you decide you don't want to do that anymore, you can move it to another podcast host. I don't know what the YouTuber does. When they decide that they're done with YouTube, they better have a newsletter where they've connected with their audience <laughs> outside the platform. Well, right, but you can't send video, right? I mean, just to be, you know, not, that's obvious, and yet it's important to point out. I'm just saying to reconnect with their audience that they may have lost if their platform uh, d- d- betrays them. Or, or where are they going to put their video? Them. I mean, it's a right. video channel. What are, I mean, they, you know, I mean, literally, where video do they go, right? Twitch, like, what know, is the alternative? Facebook. Except Twitch isn't YouTube, right? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it is, and, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't use these tools. I'm not saying anything. I'm not trying to, to, to disparage any of them. It's just always worth pointing out that, that podcasting and radio, right? Radio, there's only one monopoly, and that is the FCC. That is the federal government, because <laughs> the federal government does get to say whether or not you have a license. Unless you're doing States. part unless you're doing part 15 yeah. or or if right. you're in Canada or Unlicensed. Mexico or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. right but unless you're right but but let's you know I can Talking I can house. I can put video up on my website too and it's nothing at all like YouTube yeah no, and I don't have a good way to distribute it like YouTube so that's the part 15 unlicensed comparison right well and there's also a real excitement to how how the podcast ecosystem the attention to podcasts is being what 
a, a podcast gets an audience in a way that is wildly different than how a YouTube uh, a program gets an audience. There are similarities, but because, there are very critical differences, right? Because it YouTube is not fully is dissimilar. Al- it's an Pe- algorithm controlled by a corporation. Right. In, well, you know, it, I mean, now part. they're increasingly there are algorithms on your listening platforms that of have course. some some control over what gets promoted to people. The difference is, is that there isn't just one consolidated mammoth platform. Totally. It's many hey, different ones. This is exciting. I'm going to move call an audible. I'm going to table this conversation for the podcast <laughs> edit, which is coming up uh, in um, in just a moment because we have one more topic yes, for today's please. radio program, which is Women's History Month. And Jennifer, you had a you had some information to uh, to share with the listener about Women's History Month, which is in March. Yeah, I, I mean, I just wanted to make sure that we take some time on Radio Survivor to talk about Women's History Month and talk about women's audio and women's place in radio history. And and I just found out about a new podcast that is diving into Lady Bird Johnson, who was a first lady. Her husband was Lyndon Johnson. And it, a little known detail is that she also was a radio station owner beginning in 1943, hmm. um, which is not the topic of... so. So the new thing is that there's this new podcast about her that's based on her audio diaries, which fits with a lot of what we're talking about. To me, this is fascinating that she kept audio diaries, and I'm not sure how many what years. That's amazing in the 1960s. Okay, and and I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that you know since she had this journalism and radio background, she might be a a more likely candidate to have Mm. a tape recorder in the early 1960s. A woman who had experience talking into microphones. I know. And so these audio diaries are forming the basis for this new podcast where we're going to hear excerpts from her audio diaries over, you know, a number of episodes. And it's hosted by scholar Julia Swig, who has a new book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. So it it the series is promising to provide this other side of history because we're going to hear from Lady Bird Johnson's perspective on events that were happening while her husband was in the White House. So I love this I love this podcast idea on so many levels because we're hearing a woman's voice who you know who was comfortable using a microphone but we're also hearing another side of history which you know as we know women's perspectives often are left out of the official narrative about history so i i am i'm looking forward to this and i just wanted to make sure that we alerted our listeners to you know one of one of these interesting pieces of media that will be highlighted during women's history month I mean, it's that I. It's, it sounds fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think you said it's ABC is producing it. ABC News. Yes, that's exciting as well because okay. we there. Here is a. I think ABC makes some a, really nice podcasts. I've enjoyed a lot. Here's of what a mainstream. Done. Yeah, here's a mainstream journal. You know, one of the largest media companies on the planet is uh, putting putting their resources into making podcasts. Yeah, and it's based on. 123 hours of her audio diaries. So how interesting! I, mean, I I love it from an archive from an archival perspective too. The fact that and, and it makes me. I personally, I'm really into diaries. Um, I've I've thought a lot about diaries over the years as, um, 
as a piece of personal writing, you know, yeah. the way that different people have used diaries. Um, but I, you know, I haven't heard that much about audio diaries. So yeah, now this opens this whole other box of, um, you know, it makes me curious about how many other public figures kept audio diaries and, and maybe this will, you know, prompt more research into that. Um, but that's, it's a great use for a podcast to yeah. kind of highlight this audio history that's out there. That's very exciting. Yeah. So, it, oh, sorry. Oh, uh, so, so happy women's history month. We're also going to put some links in the show notes to some other episodes that we did about women's history and podcasting and radio. And we sort of alluded to a conversation we had with Jennifer Highland Wong about, women's early contributions to podcasting. We also did a great episode with Christine Eric about one of the first women's radio stations in the world, Radio Feminina in Uruguay. So we'll include those links in our show notes as well. Right. That Jennifer Highland Wong episode was so exciting to me because I it was it was obvious once an expert shared the information that women's voices had been, you know, had been left off of the 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 official history of podcast as soon as someone you know i mean there's it just that part that part rang true what i what i found so fascinating about what jennifer highland wong shared with us is that the same thing had happened in the history of radio and that that history was not familiar to me that women were prominently featured in front of microphones very early on in the history of radio and what jennifer highland wong was saying is that um as radio became a more national uh, media uh, instead of the local voices, um, women were being excluded, and you know certain stars of the airwaves uh, were were forgotten to history, even though they had a lot of um, you know it. It became it became a a cliche that that women didn't have a voice for radio in a part of the twentieth century, um, long after their their experiences had been erased from yeah the, it's from uh, the it's 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 just so maddening i i just watched an amazing documentary about the first female filmmaker from you know starting in the late 1800s alice guy blache and and she was literally written out of film history by people at the company where she start, first started making films. So even though if you go back and read all the trade papers, there's plenty of evidence and discussion about her being a filmmaker, that history was changed <laughs> even at the time. So so not only do we have people jockeying for what the history is and what the story is, you know, at the beginning, but you have people who are rewriting it along the way. So in it's it was both exciting to hear the story about Alice Guy Blachet and know that now people know about her, but also maddening to find out about the way women's voices have been written out of history, like not just not included, but written out of history. So I I think it's important to highlight these stories and, um, you know, I want to do more stories about women's contributions to radio and podcasting because yeah. I think it's it, you know we owe it and <laughs> we owe it to to these women to tell these stories. Yeah, and Radio Survivor of course will produce episodes about women's voices all throughout the year but it's it helps to focus our attention as producers um on on Women's History Month 
uh, it reminds me here as at the you know we're we're winding down today's radio program, but we're going to continue the conversation on our podcast. And I'm reminded of um, how the voices of women of color have been impacted by all the same things that 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 erase white women's voices in history. And the the next show topic is about um, just about how that. Um, uh, has created a lot of uh, new, fresh news and controversy in the in the world of professional podcasting, um, and so I'm going to start that conversation now. But we're going to have to bridge the, that conversation. We'll have to continue on in the podcast. Um, that we have uh, we have six more minutes before the end of the radio program. So I'm starting to talk about what happened at Gimlet, which was a workplace in professional podcasting. Gimlet is a professional podcasting company which launched uh i believe in 2015 or so made some exciting podcasts was then purchased by the corporation spotify as spotify well, and, and made we, we have to say that part of the excitement was that it was you know founded co-founded by alex bloomberg who is a well-respected public radio um personality and journalist and producer who uh, is known for his work on This American Life and yeah. as well. Alex Bloomberg the, really uh, made a huge splash Planet, in Planet Money. Yeah. In 2008, Alex Bloomberg had an episode of This American Life exploring the the inner workings of the housing bubble as it, as I think it, it collapsed. It was Planet Money. And, well, it was both. It was Wasn't an episode it, or, of This American Life that launched okay. Planet Money, which is how This American Life sort of tends to launch all these hit podcasts is that they, right. they do a hybrid show. So there was an hour-long episode of This American Life exploring – uh, it's called the um, – oh, I don't remember. It was called The Giant Pool of Money or something along those lines. It was a, a very well-produced uh, investigative journalism about the housing bubble and whether or not they could find one example of a law being broken um, the, in this event that caused the financial collapse of the entire planet. Um, that episode was so wildly popular at that time that it became the launch – had for uh, NPR's, uh, I don't know if it was officially the first, but one of NPR's most successful podcasts that decade, which was Planet Money. Now Alex Bloomberg starts a new company and a podcast about starting that company called Startup, and that becomes the, the Gimlet, which is now a workshop where podcasts of highly produced content, you know, documentary content where it's investigative journalism on top of uh, highly edited, you know, fully scripted long form radio content, which is very expensive to produce, but also very exciting. Um, that company has been through a lot that we talk about sometimes on Radio Survivor, but sometimes we just leave it off the program because I find it endlessly fascinating. Uh, my colleague here at Radio Survivor, Paul Reismandel, works in the world of professional podcasting at the company – what is your company called now? It's changed names too much. for. Well, I work at Stitcher, right. which is now uh, part of Stitcher. the SiriusXM and Pandora family. Which is also a huge event in the world of professional podcasting that we've hinted at or talked about on Rio Survivor, but sort of – you know that's a topic for another guest. My my friend Paul works at the company and is going through these changes, so it's it would be uh, uniquely fraught for us to talk about it on our show. Um, but what I'm hinting at, or what I've been driving at, 
as as we conclude today's radio program is that Gimlet produced a piece of radio that I'm going to just say blew up in their face where they had attempted to tell the story of a different workplace, a different media organization, and how that media organization had dealt very poorly with its people of color, with its younger workforce, with the women and people women who were also people of color who worked at Bon Appetit, um, Condé Nast, the magazine, had this YouTube channel that was incredible doing food content. And that all uh, was uh, – it was a hugely popular YouTube channel of cooking content, which destroyed itself in real time in front of the eyes of the audience right after the – Black Lives Matter George Floyd protests began this summer um, and was uh, went from wild online viral success to dead silence and we all sort of had to follow that story as fans of their content in the in the other media art forms it's still ongoing the people at Gimlet made radio about it and that instantly exposed their own shortcomings on the exact same issues that they had not seen coming, the leaders of that program. It's resulted in a huge shakeup at the show. I'm a huge fan of their work, so I consider it. The show is called Reply All. Yeah, and I will talk about Reply All till the cows come home. I've been an original fan of their work. It it originated in the stream of WNYC's podcast stream of on the media. A separate show. It was such a runaway hit, hiding out in on the media's podcast feed that the that the producers of that show became stars of podcasting and were poached by by this new company, Gimlet. So all of this is happening now in the world of podcasting. We're and this is this is big enough. I just want to lay this. This is big enough that it yeah, that please. it has gotten coverage in the New York Times. Like this particular controversy right. that has just happened, you know, and and. So it's not, you know, it, I, I, want, I want to assure folks we're not just picking out sort of an obscure podcast right. insider kind being, of story here. It, it stopped being podcast water cooler inside baseball, and it's really become a moment that has laid bare. Again, much like the Me Too movement, it, it actually is being um, – it is coming out of the same workplace justice work as well as the kinds of conversations that we've had on Radio Survivor about – Public media for all, where these kinds of workplaces, um, which shouldn't be so white, tend to still be places where white people are given much more comfort and privilege than the people of color. We, we're now in the podcast edit, so I said a lot. How much should I have? Uh, how, how much more can we add to the news of this story that's taking well, place? Again? So I mean, I, I think don't even you, think wait, I got to mention that. Oh, go ahead. You can add some particularity here because I think this is the details are important, but we shouldn't get lost in the details, right? You gave the sort of overview, but the particularities are important. That that two of the hosts of Reply All, of this particular series in particular, um, right? So they brought in a, a, a sort of a, a guest host of sorts for. Uh, for this, what was going to be a mini series about what happened at Bon Appetit, and she herself Are you is saying a, Shruti, Pina Mini, yeah, Shruti, yeah, who well, is a Shruti, person of Shruti is actually a um, not a not just a guest host, but is actually a um, important like 
the program was founded by the two white boys who uh, were Alex right. no, and she's been an important but part Shruti of the team. came but, on but, very early is a, and is a yeah. huge part of the team. Is the, is like the third producer of Reply All in the hierarchy right. of and her voice was heard numerous times. Uh, I, I think her voice would be the first voice that wasn't just the two white hosts voice okay. in the early days of the podcast uh, other than their boss Alex who was also a commonly heard voice so Shruti I think is how you pronounce her name yeah Shruti's voice as a producer was an early addition to the program yes in the there was a tweet by a black coworker who no longer worked with them when their episode about the bon appetit drama was released their black coworker um announced that Shruti and PJ, the other uh, founder of the program, were both hostile to the unionization efforts at the at their business, at their company, which um, privileged the, the white work- workers of the podcast uh, company over the people of color and younger people. That's part of the fun of this story. Yeah, as and well, privileged. Was was, well, uh, and and I think with the dynamic as well, it's important to tag here is that Reply All, arguably, is Gimlet's most successful ongoing show. Right, sort of the jewel jewel show, and so even though the it really was their the first, sh- it was a hit before the network existed. It was the, I mean, Startup was the first hit. Which was Alex Bloomberg's unique podcast about starting? Well, it's a, a network that doesn't company. have a lot of ongoing shows, uh, you know. But um, yeah, but it, it is sort of the hit, and so you know, while yes, Reply the hosts and the, the producers are, are you know eligible members of the bargaining unit that they're that they were forming the late the union, which has now been formed, um, they have other privileged status by the fact that they're member that they produce the most popular show right it's just well, right did they and, also and there's a sort of a class element a larger they also because they were a founding member of the business and this is all in the podcast startup i don't know this yeah. stuff because i'm privileged to gossip i know this stuff because i was a listener to their programming um the the reply all co-hosts would have had a larger payout when Spotify bought the company, then their coworkers, who might have been more aggressively trying to unionize, or folks who joined the company subsequent to that as well, depending on their yeah, status. So, oh boy, um, why is all of this important to people who aren't just intense fans of their show? Because that's me, and that's why I've been excited to talk about this. But this is a big deal in the world. This is also an opportunity. Um, for Radio Survivor to discuss the topic of um, there was a huge amount of mergers and acquisitions that took place in the podcasting industry in the last two years, and it's something we've—it's never a show—it's never been a show topic, but it's—we've—we've we've talked about it before. It also changed your status as a as a worker at one of these podcasting companies, Paul. So that's why we don't talk about it as much as um, as we may have if you had been, you know an outside observer. You've been an inside observer. Yeah. And I don't know more about what happened with reply all than anyone else. Who's read any of the news coverage or the many tweets that have been out there. So I have no inside information at all. And you know, I'm and the, why I think we can, 
it's interesting, especially given all the the time we've given to podcasting today, is more because you know it's sort of this recognition, I think, that uh, about the political economy of podcasting, which we should not expect to be so different from the political economy of any other media industry. Can you particularly can you tell when, me what you mean by political economy, Paul? Yeah, what is the relationship uh, of politics and economics? So political economy sort of says that, you know, if you want if you want if you want to figure out what's going on, follow the money. <laughs> Ultimately. Yeah. Right? And so if, if folks are familiar with Noam Chomsky, right? Familiar perhaps with uh, a lot of his both his his work analyzing politics but as well, well I, a I lot think of you his said foundational enough. Did, work. You don't have to tell us about that. I just wanted Sorry? to define political. I don't I don't want to go off that far and it. it's I feel no, like no. it's my fault that I asked you about political economy. I just wanted to define it in case it's too obscure. Yeah. I mean it is a little obscure for me. Um you don't have to talk about Noam Chomsky and as, as Well no, yeah, I was just calling it out and that's fine. And and so Right. Is that what, you know, I think that there's this tendency towards magical thinking um, that we've seen. Um, I mean, and it's not just true of Internet media, but I think we've seen it particularly with Internet media to think that every time we create a new medium or platform or way of communicating that it somehow will avoid all of the things that happened to the old way. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's a really that, that's a, a kind of yeah the unicorns of the internet um, lead to it, magical right. And it's all, and I I agree with that. And it's also that even if we have even if we think we're progressive and anti racist and all of these things, we all have work to do. And to me, that's right. what this is evidence of that. You know, I think a lot of people aren't doing all the work that they need to be doing and yeah that's a really good point because this highlights that you know there are plenty of well-meaning people who are still doing things you know who are still um doing things that are perceived as racist that are perceived as sexist by people even though they might think that they're doing a great job we all have work to do i'm always suspicious of anybody who says they are not racist or they are not sexist because we all need to work on we all need yeah, to. You work can say on, you're anti-racist and anti-sexist, right? But that doesn't mean that you've necessarily accomplished <laughs> the work yet. Well, and that's I that's, know. And Gimlet, that's an important part. That as a huge fan of their content, especially in the early years, um, this was not a center, politically center. I mean, it depends on the programming. But let's just take Reply All as an example. They they recently did an incredible amount of work on QAnon from an extremely critical point of view, which is easier to do than it used to be to be critical of right-wing conspiracy theories. But it's, it, it's, a, it's you know, what's unique about Gimlet was that they had set out to produce a, ep- a four-part ep- series of episodes about racism at someone else's workplace. And that's when their own uh, their own racism was exposed. It, it, I think that turnaround was very shocking to the white people at at Reply All. So much so yeah, that I, PJ, I, yeah. the co-host, it was announced. It was actually just announced yesterday in their feed because I mean, Eric Klein, the host of Radio Survivor, who's talking to the microphone right now, knows all of this stuff because of um, 
public tweets as well as articles being written about the stories you know in in the media i can't remember which stories i read but reported information but uh yesterday for the first time the reply all podcast feed put out a short episode where um alex goldman not the founder not alex bloomberg alex goldman the founder of reply all who hosts with pj vote announced that pj had left the show uh that broke yesterday in their feed um left the show because of the mistakes that he made he had announced he had apologized in a way that was remarkable for an apology <laughs> like a very um into my mind someone who can smell uh, bs apologies this was a real apology that pj put out that he had behaved badly um i think he's i mean maybe it wasn't good enough but he had apologized well, yeah. for the and and said he was stepping away and then they announced after that that he wasn't just stepping away um he was leaving uh, i think and what's they were important put the to show point on out hold. here right is again i <sighs> This sparks a conversation rather than is necessarily the subject of a conversation. And yeah, of course. Well, the, I'm sorry. There's so much pent up. I have a lot of pent up opinions that I should have expressed on previous episodes of Radio Survivor as well. That's why I'm. But, that's why I'm a little worked up. Yeah, and that and that's okay. I mean, and and you know, both of you made reference during the, during the show earlier to to public public media for all, right? Which is a which is a a, a, a POC led diversity effort for public media right recognizing that and and so you know it, it's worth noting that that in podcasting not only at gimlet a very large percentage of the talent pool came out of public radio and, oh yeah there's and an overlap simply by numbers impossible. many came out of the larger public media institutions just because that's where the jobs are they really and, are the same it's the same job pool it, it has ways, been. It's changing. Content. It's yeah. changing, but it has been for a long time. And certainly early on, I mean, if you were looking for somebody who had these skills uh, around editing and producing and such um, and, and had it on their resume and had all the bona fides, that's, you found, that's where you found your candidates. Um, so it's not surprising to me that we're having this discussion in podcasting at all. Because of the fact that it it doesn't exist in a bubble, either culturally or or the political economy of it, what and and, and so it's it you know and and that it sh- that these that these shoes should drop. Another similar controversy happened in the, there was yeah, a producer at the New York Times who had had who had worked at WNYC in New York City who right. um, worked on uh, Caliphate which. Was a no, podcast oh my series, gosh, so much. which the New York Times won a Peabody for, but it turned out to be mostly based upon uh, yeah. a bad source, uh, a source well, who was confabulating and I, yeah, I need to- inadequately fact checked. And um, the host of the show uh, of that particular show uh, ends up, uh, you know, did not lose her job at the New York Times, but was reassigned. Make that make of that or what you will, but her producer seemed not to experience. Who's a white guy? Uh, did not seem to experience any real uh, consequences to speak of, and in fact, sort of continued to have a fairly sweet gig working on the New York Times's daily news podcast called The Daily, which is very popular and uh, really highly regarded in, in podcasting, including shortly after this news broke, getting a chance to 
uh, co-host uh, a special episode. Right. Of well, the I want to I want to share with the listeners of Radio Survivor that I was. But can I finish the? Can I? I'd like to finish the arc and then I'll let you go. <laughs> okay. This is about. This is about. Um, what's his name? We haven't named him. It's okay. Um, and uh, we'll you know. So, you know, and at the same time, uh, many women came forward and had been coming forward for quite some time, I understand. But sort of the public chorus uh, became much greater that, you know, he basically uh, his behavior towards women um, at at various workplaces had been poor, had been harassing. Um, And, you know. It's sort of this conflagration of all these factors right. uh, so kind of was kind of started again coming right. together where where it seemed like there was a meta narrative of basically a uh, nice white boy can fail up. You were talking. So we're talking. about uh, It's just. Oh, uh, yeah. You're, you're talking about did the, you see my head exploding? <laughs> you're talking about the producer, Andy Mills, who I want to tell a story to the listeners of Radio Survivor. I was out for a walk in on Thanksgiving Day listening to podcasts while I walked in my neighborhood and I tuned in to the daily, which has been um, for a while. The daily was uh, the most exciting thing in podcasting uh, for me when they launched, because I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep telling personal stories. When I was a young man in radio, um, one of my mentors was just slightly older than me, only two or three years older than me. This is when I was in my mid twenties, and he got hired to be the podcast producer for the Daily Newspaper in San Francisco in the early two thousands. And I got so excited that my friend was going to be in the room on the ground inventing what podcasts would sound like at a newspaper at a time where this was uh, brand new in the culture, and very quickly. I learned through conversations with him that that was not, in fact, going to happen, that the culture of the paper was not going to accept audio where no reporter wanted to learn how to hold a microphone. It failed miserably and quietly. It's just a weird story that I know about. They, I don't even think the San Francisco Chronicles – I don't know what they did about podcasts. but this They have moment, podcasts. <laughs> they do now. But this they do have – they in, have a number of podcasts. In yes. 2005 – well, a lot, yeah, a lot of papers podcasts. started podcasts, figured out they didn't know what to do with them or how to make any yeah. money, and then so, ended them. So in when, those early so when yeah. the yeah, so when the New York Times launched the Daily, I was very excited because that was what I had expected to hear fifteen years earlier, where uh, daily journalism was going to be done with audio, with the reporters who are experts in their stories, and but also new kinds of reporting and. new information would be shared with the listeners that I was very excited by the daily. I'm out for a walk listening to the episode that they put into their feed for the holidays, which means that it was a highly produced bit of um, evergreen filler where, and where um, it was an amazing episode. I was about to, you know, post about it on radio survivor because it was about a woman who has been hosting a call in radio show for three decades that's a very uh, nationally well-known like love song call in um what's the word when you uh when you dedicate your you know that that culture of radio that um, yeah you're feels there was so about delilah adorable. she delilah, was, a, it was a nationwide you. uh syndicated radio host uh right who who specializes in dedications to love songs 
So this was an incredible this I'm sorry to take the listeners on this journey, but there's a point. It was very exciting to me also because here was a good example, something we talked about about 45 minutes ago, an hour ago, of commercial radio doing what I want all radio to do, but it's special because it just doesn't happen very often, forming a community around the listening experience, opening the phones to the audience, uh, strengthening what was amazing about this episode of The Daily that Andy Mills had produced – was that Delilah's work as a radio host was really um, held up as an incredible force for good in the world. The way she opened the phones, the way she formed community, the way she strengthened people's, um, the way she like brought out the best in her listeners. And it's all around like extremely cheesy pop love songs of the, 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. But um, I told my coworkers about this incredible episode, and uh, I was informed, oh, just you wait, this Andy Mills character um, is not well-liked by his colleagues. Women have been telling other people for as long as they could. Women were trying to be heard telling their coworkers that he was... um, he was hostile to other women in the workplace. It now it also turns out that he was an, a leader of this very controversial caliphate podcast, which I just want to say was badly done because the New York Times is terrible when it reports on Iraq and the Iraq war, not because of the fact that it was audio. Um, you know, the New York – I'm going to talk about um, – you know, well, uh, I think you know the point here is I, I don't really mean to take us down into the specifics. We've here. never talked about caliphate. Caliphate. Right. I have a lot of thoughts about yeah, caliphate. I, I, but Andy I, Mills should have been held more responsible for the failures of this wildly popular documentary. And, series and my than point he was. here is, is 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 not to call out him or anyone in particular necessarily. I mean, is to point out that the replication of of there being the opportunity for someone like this. Is going to will continue to happen, and it doesn't just magically change because now we're talking about podcasting or YouTube or or wherever, right? Um, that that's my point, and I say this not as a, because I'm either pro or down on podcasting, but that the critiques of of, of both sort of our culture and and how. Uh, Organizations, be they nonprofits or corporations or nonprofits that behave like corporations, didn't suddenly change overnight because we got a different medium to play with. Um, and that also doesn't mean that podcasting is doomed, right? It, 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 I always have this sort of, you know, I plow this kind of middle line for better or worse, and, and, we, and I may hear about it, but in that there are opportunities for change. What podcasting brought to the fore which was missing from the radio was a tremendously lower uh, barrier to entry, right? Tremendously lower barrier to entry, which encourages both new voices and new approaches and new styles. It lowers the, it lowers the consequences of failure. But now what we've started to see is an elevation of the consequences of success. Uh, In 2008, uh, the material, uh, gains from podcasting for anyone only got so high. 
in in 2021, they're significantly higher, right? That raises the stakes, absolutely. Uh, the great option, the great side of it is that it, it means there's many more po- opportunities for people to make a living and a, and a fair living wage producing and making audio. Um, it's a net good, right? Because it turns out that there was an audience, a latent audience, if you will, for good spoken word audio programming that wasn't being satisfied. And of course, now we have uh, young people who didn't really even grow up with thinking much about spoken word audio being introduced to it via podcasting. So these are all good things. It doesn't mean, but then it doesn't necessarily mean, though, because it wasn't as if there was this revolution and, you know, public, the old way of doing things was suddenly overturned. And that, right, and instead, as I point out, a lot of the same people and players, and by players I mean, you know, sort of more institutional entities, who had uh, a strong role in, in radio and traditional media are also there in podcasting. Right. Um, well, I want to – I saw a tweet and I think it was significant enough to put it into my own voice and say it into the microphone that – there was an awful lot of overlap in workplace culture with WNYC, a, a, a place that I'm comfortable calling out because I'm such a huge fan of their radio content. But we also know that there was a lot of toxic male boss behavior or male coworker with more power than their female coworkers behavior at WNYC. Um, and I think some of the most prominent uh, you know, it got it got name checked on our public media for all episode because they some of the some of the downfall of the men who had been uh, toxic coworkers was most um, the, the the most coverage of that those events were at the WNYC uh, radio programs. I, I know that it changed my radio dial here in Portland, Oregon. Um, that certain hosts lost their lost their turn at the microphone because of their toxic behavior. John Hockenberry and, of the of the takeover. Yeah, right? John, and he was yeah, and he was not in Portland. He was in New York. It was so it was a national. There's an yeah. outcome, right? And and so, and and you know, so on the one hand, it means that there's lots there's lots of opportunities for for people to produce and be heard outside of that system. But, but where the paychecks are, <laughs> yeah, right, uh, are are, well, it's, are it's, going to be more fully in the system. You it's know? really and, fascinating that startup the the podcast laid bare how Gimlet the company was built before it was purchased by Spotify, and that it all it all grows out of this venture capitalist male dominated tech techie tech millionaire world view um it's kind of incredible looking backwards it would be really interesting to re-listen to the podcast startup with this amount of information in my head i i also want to throw into the stew now that i was i've loved podcasts the whole time i've been a huge fan of certain podcasts on day one that and i'm proud of that in a weird way that I'm it's bragging. Um, you know, I listened to the first episode of WTF with Mark Marin before the second episode was released into the feed. I listened to the first episode of Comedy Bang Bang before the second episode was released into the feed. I also 
was a gigantic – I listened to the first episode of Reply All um, when they moved over from their feed on WNYC's On the Media, which is a wonderful public radio program. Um, my favorite show on Gimlet was Starly Kine, star of many episodes of This American Life. Uh, Starly Kine had a show called Mystery Show, which was briefly – the greatest thing in radio. I've often wanted to tell – I actually wrote about it in the zine that we put out. How much – how big of an impact the work that was Mystery Show had on my perception of what a podcast was. So excited. Starly Kind's program, Mystery Show, was a gimlet uh, – was one of the first prominently canceled gimlet shows. And that uh, – here we are um, six years later uh, – People, I will point people towards Starly Kind's Twitter feed. Has it for, really been six years? Yeah, wow, 2015. Wow, and that's and as I I noticed this six months ago that I stopped having the same kind of passion for podcast as the medium that was changing my life in 2015 when Starly Kind's show was canceled, even though it was the best thing I'd ever heard. Um, I, I encourage listeners to check out Mystery Show. I really still think it's delightful. You know, it's it's it's. Um, so why did you take us on this garden path? It was very well produced. It was clearly expensive, and it was like an episode of This American Life in the production values, which mean that journalists, numerous journalists, not just Starly Kind, the host, had to do real reporting work to gather voices and facts in order to produce one episode of the program. So weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of serious work had to go into each episode. Expensive. But what was amazing about the mystery... So, but also, Mystery Show was beautiful because it had one really good elevator pitch idea, which were Starly Kind, host of the show, was going to solve mysteries that her friends, they're always her friends, brought her that couldn't be solved by Googling the answer on the internet, that these were real mysteries. But then what Starly Kind would do was inhabit the role in a unique and subversive way of the detective, a character which comes from literature starting with... So why are we talking about Mystery Show? I know it's your favorite show. (laughs) Well, uh, it got canceled by her Mm -hmm. boss. Mm -hmm. And... and, um, when it was canceled, Starly Kind was vocally devastated, unhappy, and has been recently uh, tweeting a lot about what's happening to Gimlet in the news and saying that the workplace was um, not a kind place for women like her. But I love Mystery Show because of its structure. <laughs> I just will talk forever about about how it it, the structure of each episode was the most um, uh, uh, exciting form of radio journalism, podcasting, that I'd ever heard. That that Starly Kine, at the beginning, would say she's going to solve a mystery. At the end of the episode, she would actually give you a mind-blowing solution to the mystery. The story would be told very well. There's only so I'm going to do that thing that you hate. And I'm going to ask yeah. you because you because you no, do it. You had primed this before we started. 
with something that she had tweeted, right, as, as a framing question. So yeah, I, I have I her tweet. I, that's where I, I thought you were going capture. with this. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I took a screen grab of her tweet. It was uh, tweeted out on uh, February 19th, 2021. Um, anyone can create one. Oh, um, uh, where, well, where Starley was coming from the idea that uh, podcasts are, okay, so th- I will paraphrase. Podcasts are amazing because, and now quote, anyone can create one. Barely anyone can get paid for one. After years of audio not paying, a window opened up after Serial, where the medium was suddenly of financial value. So the same predictable CEO types, you can picture them, stepped in and painted that window shut. Wow. That, now, Starley has, has tweeted about this issue a little bit that the amazing thing is there was at the when mystery show went off the air there was um almost no information available other than extremely unsourced gossip about what had happened and slowly it's come you know fans of the show have learned a little bit about what happened in fact starly kind put out a statement early on when the show had gone off the air that was uh, pretty controversial and might have like sealed her fate in other workplaces, not, you know, never getting hired again to work at another corporate podcasting workplace uh, because she, uh, she talked ill of her former employers, uh, be that as it may. But now that, now that the story is out there because of this episode where reply all again, one of my favorite shows. Again, I should just say to the listener, my son, who is a huge fan of the show, forced me to listen to this Bon Appetit episode one day before the news broke about that it was so controversial. So the become... uh, her, her, her tweet, is that a question? <laughs> is that a framing? Is, is that something for us to address? Oh, well, I mean... It is a perception of one professional in right. this medium okay. that that there was an opportunity for new voices to get paid that, in her mind, uh, closed. <laughs> that it's less exciting to work in podcasting in 2021 than it was in 2015. I sure hope she's wrong. Right. Of course, Paul <laughs> Reesmandel. Well, now, I mean, no, it's I mean, worth just, mentioning I mean, that people who work and, for and, Stitcher and, are and, happier. And, and when I say, well, when, you know, when I say, I don't want to pitch that. So I'm not, I'm not going to speak from, I'm not going to compare workplaces. Um, when I say I hope she's wrong, I will say this. I do not know Starly. And I have, I, I am not here to punch holes in her experience or her story. So let me just say that, that I, I, I'm, I want, I believe, I believe when she speaks to her experience, I believe her. Right. Um, and, and it is, you know, and then, but it is one thing to, to express experience. And it's one thing to make a global conclusion about an industry based upon it. Right. Those are, those are two different things. Um, and so I, I can respect where she's coming from. Right. I, I mean, I, we talked about this, uh, program that ABC, which is the Walt Disney corporation is putting out. I'm sure that the people who worked on this Linden, uh, Lyndon Bird Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson, <laughs> uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, first lady. That this podcast series that is coming out, I'm I'm just going to assume that the good people that made that that did that work uh, got compensated very well for their time. That they were paid as professionals. So obviously, 
obviously there are more seats to sit in and get paid for the work in 2021 than there was in 2015. I mean, I mean the thing I'm thinking with all of this is that a lot of women, you know, I'll speak as a woman and probably people of color probably feel like there need to be alternative um, companies and institutions that perhaps value our voices more and and provide more opportunities, um, you know, because unfortunately still in 2021, you know, there are these barriers. So to me, you know, that's what I'm hearing her say, this frustration that it seemed like there was this magical moment where everything was going to change, but it didn't really change. It's sort of, you know, the way things have always been, which is incredibly disappointing. Well, and, and I mean, and I think there aren't these moments where everything changes. I, I, if I'm going to, if I'm looking at the history here and I'm looking at this as an historian and history is a very important component of political economic analysis, looking at what has actually happened through that lens of where was the money? Where did it go? Who had it? Who didn't? Where did it flow? Who gave it to whom? And I think that I am going to, I I will continue to be uh, very hopeful about podcasting in the same way I'm very hopeful about community radio. In a way, I'm still very hopeful about low power FM, right? It's not because it's a revolution. But it is an iteration, and it and there are a lot of positive changes. I think that uh, these sorts of of iterations have on on the culture at large. And I, I mean, I can say, you know, and I can say this. I think that that it is true of you know all of the major companies investing in podcasting. I think have a good faith have a good faith uh, a mission to to diversify, right? And to lower barriers and, and to bring, you know, both more diverse voices onto the air behind the scenes as well, as well as therefore also to serve an audience. Right. And I think that they all see it in their, in their, as in their best economic advantage. We talked about how the podcast audience is diversifying. And if you are a, a big money podcast CEO, which I am not, um, and you look at that and you see, well, you know, gosh, there's all these people who don't listen. That's an opportunity, <laughs> right? How do we get them to listen? We, 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 we produce content that people want to hear, right? I mean, that's ultimately how it works. And that is on its face. I'm not going to say it's value neutral, but it's based upon the economic system we work in. It's logical. And it, it does have it can have positive effects, right? Um, and and I and you know whether it you know whether it's sort of like iHeartMedia has a has a deal with Charlemagne the God, who is a very prominent uh, radio host out of uh, New York City, who's been a podcaster for quite some time, but they're basically building up a a, 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 a network of black voices around Charlemagne, yeah. right? I mean, he's one of he's probably the what you know he's he's probably the biggest uh black voice on the radio one of them yes absolutely and you know and they're investing quite a bit of money in that um and i you know i know more no more of it than that you know the news headline right but there i can point to examples throughout the industry where that where that's happening and i and i you know i i don't think it's 
you know, there, there will be some folks who who are probably yelling at their at their headphones right now that 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 they think, you know, a company like iHeart is is fundamentally craven and this can't possibly be uh, be sincere. But you know what? I, I'm just going it, to assume it's, it's though that Charlemagne, <laughs> from what I know about Charlemagne the God, as a business person, mm-hmm. as a uh, celebrity intellectual, because I've I've they, I've heard their voice on more than one occasion, talk about more than one thing. And I would imagine that they're, um, that they are not Pollyanna-ish, yeah. if that's the right word, Absolutely. about starting this business with a company like iHeart. Like they know who iHeart is. They know, they know how to deal with, uh, with a big media company and still preserve the, you know, still make sure that, that he gets to tell the stories he chooses to tell and hire the people he chooses to hire. It's going to be fascinating. And, oh, on, an and on the other story. hand, though, work still needs to be done to change, you know, workplace culture, <laughs> what change all sorts of embedded biases that appear to be everywhere, right? They, they, you know, they aren't exclusive to public radio. They aren't exclusive to, to, to commercial radio. And I know for damn sure they're not exclusive to community radio. Right. Just to remind ourselves or of why to- we- the world or to <laughs> like the world. any yeah. any industry i why mean we, we have to change um we have to change who owns companies who's in charge at companies you know a lot yeah. of places may have a lot of women and people of color who work there but very few who are actually running the place and so that makes a huge difference it's all of it it's yeah and- a cultural problem right and and that's not letting anyone off the hook i i don't mean to sort of you know, um, what about this out of existence? That's not my my that's not my point here. Um, it is to say that it's is that I think that podcasting represents a real opportunity because it expands, essentially expands the market for people who want to make audio. It therefore expands the opportunities, but not but but if if that's not going to replicate the barriers and biases that existed heretofore up to now. Uh, work will have to be done everywhere, right? You know, and I can I can speak, you know, I can speak a little bit to to, to efforts I know about, um, you know, that I in both the company I work for now and the company that owned my company before this, um, that were that that were have been ongoing for for, for some time, you know, and things which are like. Um, Blinded resumes and hiring. So taking off names, taking off schools, taking off degrees. So except for mm-hmm. jobs where maybe a degree is absolutely nec- is required, a particular degree, right? Um, so that the biases that come with that get put to the side, right? Because there's also this tendency that if you, you know, at, there was a time where if you, if you met an intern at, say, WNYC, they came from maybe one of five different schools, and you'll bet that a lot of them didn't tend to be large state universities or small uh, or small colleges, right? Or if they were small colleges, it would be something. It would be a a, a fairly uh, prestigious uh, small liberal arts college, right? And and not and less likely to be somebody who who went to a SUNY school, um, right? And and because there's these bias towards well, somebody who graduated from a, a prestigious university you know, somehow is more accomplished that, that, that they carry with them that, that, uh, that, 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 that varnishing. Um, right. And so there's an understanding that, you know, it, that even if 
you're being you're trying your best to be blind to factors of race and 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 uh, and gender. Right. The, the fact is you're letting somebody you're offloading that filtering to the school, which, you know, by virtue of having tuitions that cost five, five figures or, you know, well into six figures to, to finish, um, you know, it has it's already done that sorting for you. Right. And, already- and, some, and some of those companies would literally recruit. I mean, I think back to my experience at my first job, there were people who came from certain schools and so the company was actually recruiting people from these Ivy League and, you know, top tier yeah. liberal arts schools. And so you're right. It becomes this very closed system that how do you get in if you're not part of that? So that's amazing that that your company has been doing some of those things like having blind resumes. And I don't think, you know, and it's good. And I also don't think it's exclusive. Like, I think that this is a trend we're seeing, but you have, but, but it's sort of, you have to make. The choice, right? Uh, the company has to make a choice to see that lens all the way down through the biases, right? Because, say, in tech, you've heard these arguments. Well, there just isn't the talent pool when it comes well, to women. What was and, and folks who aren't white, but 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 when they're only going to Stanford to recruit, uh, but you know, but you, one you've of the, limited you, you've limited your pool. One of the things that was unique about the podcast that explored the. Bon Appetit workplace was that they hired people of color, but always at the bottom, and and the 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 people with the comfortable jobs at the top were white or almost all white, and that there was always that um, the workplace was never even if the workplace was very diverse. If you took a family picture of your whole workplace, you'd see lots of people of color in it the power in the workplace was still wielded by white people in ways that were both explicit and also constant, constant microaggressions, you know, both real aggression and the small aggression. And, and what was amazing about that podcast story that was reported by reply all the podcast of Gimlet was that instantly their coworkers of color or former coworkers of color stepped forward and said, Hey, wait a minute. Doesn't that sound familiar? PJ, doesn't that sound really familiar that your work, the workplace that you helped put together was also very diverse where the hardworking young people who were making less money than everyone else goes. But at the top where the decisions were made, there was a cool kids club that was a lot more white and, uh, and it, it made, it made everything more difficult for, for well, people like us. I mean, these are very important conversations, and I'm glad people are bringing them to light. I'm hearing, I'm hearing this on college campuses, too. Most colleges have um, feeds. I've been following a feed on Instagram for my college for, where black students you know, from, from every era at the school are talking about the things that happen on campus that – Oh, yeah. Maybe I didn't notice when I was in college, and it's incredibly eye-opening, and it's making me realize things that I've done that aren't okay. Um, so I'm glad. I'm glad that we're having more of these conversations so that we can all take a closer look at ways that we can do a much better job. Yeah, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, just sort of wrapping up where I'm, where I'm at here, and I'll just – I'm probably just repeating myself, but it's to say – you know, that we shouldn't be surprised that the biases 
and the racism and the sexism in our culture would get reproduced in a new medium. Um, that, it, that, it, that the new medium itself is insufficient to rid us of these ills. Um, because if you're going to do that simultaneous with the new medium or simultaneous with developments in the new medium, you must then also target and address the racism and the sexism, etc. Uh, the new medium itself, even though it will grow opportunities and as a result may put pressures on that maybe weren't extant in the same way, right? Um, by virtue of seeming open or seeming more open, actually, you know, the doors is a little bit more open. More folks come in, but that ends up putting pressure on these existing biases and that's probably a good thing, but it's not fun for the people who go through it, right? It's not yeah. fun for the, for the women and, and people of color or other folks experiencing a degree of difference, which could be class or, or in other ways. Um, gender. Who, I mean, we can't leave out right. gender identity. Exactly. Who find themselves bashing their head against the glass ceiling. Uh, you know, that's not fun, right? So it probably has some net positive results because, uh, if there is uh, goodwill and good intentions to address uh, the problems as they come up, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it's still it's still uh, you know not 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 ideal. It's good to see um, folks with privilege and power in the system take a step back and step away and acknowledge or at least att- apologize or attempt to apologize in 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 ways that seem. Um, to be uh, self-reflective and um, attempt to to really trying to to see uh, you know what goes on in somebody what what, what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. Um, those are good things, um, but it's just the start, you know. And for myself, I reflect on it as as a, as a middle middle aged middle class white guy. Uh, what is my role in it all? I work in podcasting. I don't work in a glamorous role. You know, I work. You don't in, get to. Uh, you don't get to hire anybody who gets to produce any shows. No, which is pretty, I get, is pretty much the. Yeah, that's that's where the power is. That's not. Well, I mean, there are multiple. I mean, the power, power what? <laughs> the power what? I mean, the economic to power. To quote Foucault, maybe. What did you say? Please repeat <laughs> the programming. They're like multiple. They're multiple sites of power. There are multiple sites of power. I was thinking you know, about just the, the ability to hire people who get to speak into microphones and, and find an sure. audience. You know, it's one of the things that... Um, but, but, but ultimately, yeah, gonna, I am going to interrupt you Go because ahead. what does matter, though, also, is that if we're talking about the free ad-supported podcast, right, it's going to matter who is selling those ads. It's going to matter who is behind the scenes helping the ads to get placed. Like, a lot of that really does matter, uh, you know, and those are also sites of incredible power. Yeah, no, I'm sorry to leave that. You know, it's funny. I just keep thinking about one of the things that Starley Kind's tweet that I read out half an hour ago made me think of is that, and also, you know, our conversations throughout Radio Survivor about how wonderful podcasts are because anybody can have one. Um, but what Starley Kind was getting at, and is still very interesting to me as a podcaster, uh, and a person who loves radio and had a job at a community radio station um, is that everyone can start one, but who gets who can afford to start one, and how long can they work at it before they run out of room 
to do it for free, uh, how how fast can they build that audience? And um, all of that stuff is, yeah. I think, that's what's still up in the air. You know, Jennifer, that, that, I don't that's think a great we, question. I, I just want to say know, that that's the right question. Yeah. We, it's been we've been we're we're, we're we're nearing the second hour of our show today and we had we had planned on talking to Jennifer about the launch of Jennifer's new podcast I think we need to table it because I want to talk about it a lot but Jennifer how's the new podcast going it's good it launched two days ago so, so you guys have recorded and the a name lot. is uh the name is back to the double R it's a Twin Peaks rewatch podcast. The, the double R is a diner on Twin Peaks. So we're going back to the double R. And so, yeah, we launched our first episode and as well as a website. So, yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about in our ne- in our next conversation about it. Um, there, there were more things to do than I think I knew there were a lot of things to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think I think some of my colleagues maybe didn't realize all the things to do. Um, it's not and- just talking into microphones. But what's interesting, you know, with Radio Survivor, we had a, a website where we were writing about things for a long time before we did a podcast. And so, you know, this time around, it's a little bit different in that we recorded, I guess we recorded seven episodes before we launched. And and so now we're like, oh, yeah, I guess we're writing things too. <laughs> so it's sort of the reverse where... Now I'm realizing, oh, I have to do written content as well, which is fun and cool. It's, um, you know, this is a pop culture podcast. So this is different than what I normally do. I mean, on Radio Survivor, we've had a few episodes that that completely scratched that itch for me. Like when we talked about depictions of radio and film. Still my favorite, uh, like, you know, Black Sheep episode of Radio Survivor. I know. I we love talked that. To, we talked to a young woman who gets to decide or help decide which films air on a day of programming on Turner Classic Movies. I and know. she had programmed a full day of film about radio. And it was just I know. amazing. It's, it's so great. Yeah, I love that episode. And I've written, I've also written fun things on Radio Survivor about televised Yule Logs. And, um, you know, I, I like these quirky pop culture stories. I have a degree in popular culture studies. So... So it's fun to be doing this more, you know, pop culture analysis kind of podcast. Um, and, you know, I've learned a lot from both of you. So I definitely have probably been giving more tips than my <laughs> colleagues really want. Um, but, um, you know, but it's been helpful to be doing a podcast all these years with both of you because um, I can share tips about, you know, how you know, what a show should be like. Some of the other stuff I haven't been as familiar with. So, you know, we don't have our RSS feed up yet. And, you know, there are a lot of like important podcasty things that are still on the to-do list. But, you know, I think we realized you can't launch a website and a podcast and have everything all figured out when you're doing it, you know, in a few days. <laughs> I mean, yeah. your team your team has spoken into microphones in a structured regular regularly scheduled you know every, you guys have a time you get together to record you've recorded numerous episodes you've structured your conversations you've learned how to listen to each other your your the audio that you produced is now up on your website where audiences m- can now encounter it 
And those are all very important steps in the right direction. Your website looks beautiful. Um, but yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah, incredible. Credit, credit to my friend Colin who it, did the website. It's incredible how much more there is to podcasts. Um, you know, Paul Reese Mandel did all of that work for Radio Survivor of making sure that what I want to call the back end, you know, um, uh, where do you put the audio? How do people get to it? Uh, I guess if there is anybody in our audience who doesn't know, you know, you can listen to audio in all sorts of ways across the World Wide Web. But if you don't have a feed, which is a, you know, unique bit of code that comes with the invention of the format of podcasting, uh, if you don't have a feed, people cannot subscribe to your podcast in the numerous podcast apps that are most commonly used, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Uh, all you know, Google Podcasts, all those places. That's that's where the RSS feed uh, becomes necessary, and uh, so that's that's step that's step seventeen for the for yes, Jennifer Waits's team. I think we're going to do that. Prob- I'm talking to my friend who set up the website in eight minutes, and so I think that is going to be the first topic of conversation is helping you know figure out you know did you figure out the RSS because. You know, the exciting thing is we're having people asking us about the RSS feed. So that at least means that people noticed that we launched something. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, we've had there's down- Sorry. we've had downloads. So, you know, even without the RSS feed, we're excited. There are, you know, for any of these things, whether it's a YouTube channel or a Twitch channel there is always more to it than just showing up and pressing record or pressing live. And, you know, that is the sort of the art of it in a lot of ways. Um, And to your point, Eric, which you made, you know, is that anyone can have a podcast, but what is it to, to, you know, have the time and, and to be able to actually do it right time, et cetera. And that's where I'll say, you know, look, uh, if I could vote, Right now, we all have a universal basic income. I would think there'd be many more podcasts. (laughs) Because if if so many people, if they could have their basics taken care of, um, you know, they'd be free to make the great podcast. And some would would, would care to to try and build a bigger audience and to make a living or to make more than a living at it. And that would be great. Uh, But what if, uh, boy, with just the basic needs taken care of, then... Uh, a thousand, maybe maybe a thousand other shows could right. could thrive well, because uh, they would would worry a little less about uh, that rent check or paycheck I, or, or yeah yeah doctor it does, visit. <clears throat> does require some privilege of time and mm-hmm. equipment yeah and I yeah same same with radio you know same with volunteering at a community radio station yeah. we've talked about that for the last five years that exactly. uh, six years that that the people that you know and I've. I had the experience of having coworkers, you know, explain that to me 20 years ago that like, look, this this workplace used to be a lot less diverse before we started paying people. That the only people could who could afford to be here were were very privileged and we figured out a structure to 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 give jobs to young people of color <laughs> explicitly so that there would be older people of color working here in the future. Um mm. that was like a project. That was a that yeah. was, you know, and it was not a non-controversial project at the time that it was launched at KPFA. Um, and it, you know, I'm sure the good people who have participated in that work 
would have a diversity of opinions about its outcomes. But I know for certain that uh, that there are people of color and women working jobs at KPFA that came up through that specific allocation of resources directed at at uh, you know expanding the job pool uh, for for non-white men. <laughs> And with that, that is the conclusion of today's episode of Radio Survivor. It might have gone on for 10 more minutes if Jennifer Waits hadn't called it there uh, so that she could run to complete work on her other podcast, on her brand new Twin Peaks recap show podcast, which I recommend every Radio Survivor fan check out. Links in the show notes. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, go to Radio Survivor dot com slash support we're also a podcast and if you haven't subscribed please do so because we would love for you to be able to get each episode uh in your feed you know we say this every week and i feel as though if you have uh made it to the end of today's episode if you've if you enjoyed two hours of radio survivor you're probably already someone who subscribes but uh radio survivor is also a one hour radio program which can be heard across the country and the world uh, and we provide that program for free to everyone who airs it. And you find you can if you if you know a station or a station manager, uh, you can uh, you can suggest Radio Survivor to them as uh, content for their airwaves. You know, today Jennifer, Paul, and I uh, covered, especially in the one-hour edit, we covered uh, three topics of conversation about about radio and sound. Uh, oftentimes, we give guests on who are who who get to get who get to say more than um, you know. Why? What am I doing? What am I doing? Is I'm I'm recognizing that, especially in the last hour, I I talked a lot. Uh, the the passion I feel for Gimwit as a podcasting company and then the fact that they found themselves just square in the center of uh news and culture for a minute uh got me a little bit excited i had a lot of things on my mind uh and i hope that communicating that to you the listener was worth your time if you have any opinions about those stories that i was sharing if i left something out because of all the facts that were overflowing my mind and that i spoke into the microphone i definitely left out some important parts of the story you know uh parts that make the story more worth talking about than the things that i managed to bring up uh go ahead and email us our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com and i will read those comments and take them to heart be they critiques or praise um oh i should also let you know listener that uh last week uh, i did promise here in the credits that we would have uh, becky myers of uh k Kaw in sitka alaska on uh this week's episode and that that episode is uh being recorded uh mere days from today <laughs> uh we're, I, we're, we're sitting down with becky uh this friday which you will be able to hear next week that's the plan uh we just rescheduled that episode on behalf of paul reese mandel jennifer waits and myself my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.